Well, hello again, I'm Tony Payne, and welcome to another edition of The Painful Truth, a partner-only edition, this one. And it's an edition where I'm picking up on a question that we left hanging at the end of last week's episode about singing and music and how slow our songs are becoming and what's going on with our singing. And I left a question hanging, I guess, at the end of, of that episode, and it's been taken up by a number of people in the days since. Perhaps the best form of the question comes in an email from Jack. Jack says, quoting me, he says, Singing for us is a form of speech to one another and to God. It's a more emotionally charged form of speech, but it's one facet of the word-based personal relationship we have with God and with one another. That's a quote from, from my article. And Jack says, sure, okay. But what then do we make of the more emotionally charged nature of singing? Clearly, singing is more than just speech, not wanting to detract from its intrinsic wordiness. But I'd be keen to hear how you would give an account of the purpose of that emotional charge if atmosphere is the wrong category. That's phrasing it really well, Jack, and thank you for that question. Because we can all agree that theologically dodgy emotional manipulation or vacuous, wordless kind of atmospheric music is not what we want. But what is the place of emotions in singing? What's the charge in music's emotional charge. Now, as Jack says, the position I'm arguing against sees singing as a way of creating an atmosphere or getting people into a certain spiritual mood, of arousing certain feelings within them that open them up to the experience of God and to his truth in a new way. But if that's not the way, then what is the way to think about the power or the charge of music? And in all of this, do I have the great Jonathan Edwards against me? There's a famous paragraph from his book, The Religious Affections. I heard it quoted actually again just recently at the Reach Australia conference, where Edwards says this, And the duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed wholly to excite and express religious affections. No other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and to do with, with music, but only that such is our nature and frame that these things have a tendency to move our affections. I'll just read that again because it's quite a complicated paragraph. And the duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed wholly to excite and express religious affections. No other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose, and to do it with music, but only that such is our nature and frame, that these things have a tendency to move our affections. That's from his treatise on the religious affections, part 1, section 2.9. So is Edwards really arguing in favour of the thing that I'm opposing? Is he saying that God has given us singing to get us in the mood, as it were, to excite our affections and warm us up to a certain kind of Christian feeling that we don't just get from the Word. Well, no, I don't think he's saying that, not if I understand him correctly, which is not always an easy thing. In fact, I think Edwards's argument may actually help us to answer this question, the question about what is the emotional charge of singing and its function? What does the music add? 
Edwards's treatise, A Treatise Concerning the Religious Affections, was written in the context of the New England awakening or revival, and in the context of the many dramatic and visible manifestations of emotion, or as he would say, affections, that were evident at that time. And Edwards, in this context, wanted to argue that these religious affections could be quite appropriate and genuine, and that in fact, true religion very much consisted in the affections. On the other hand, he also wanted to say that the existence of religious affections, even high and intense ones, was no indication at all of true Christianity. In other words, it was very possible to have the affections, but not Christianity. And finally, he wanted to say that there were true and genuine Christian religious affections, and these had various distinguishing marks by which they could be recognised. Now, the well-known quote above about singing and the affection comes from the introduction to the treatise, in which Edwards basically argues that a Christianity without the affections is hard to imagine and hard to support. Why, he asks, did God give us singing if our affections have nothing to do with it? However, it's not only singing. Edwards also lists in that section prayer, the sacraments, and preaching as God-given spiritual activities, or duties as he would call them, that involve the whole person, that affect our hearts and move us to grasp hold of God in love and faith. If Christianity was purely a matter of intellectual understanding and not of the affections, Edwards argues, why not just give everyone a commentary to read on Sundays? Why preach a sermon to them? Because he says the sermon does more than just convey information. And I'm quoting again from Edwards. God hath appointed a particular and lively application of his word in the preaching of it as a fit means to affect sinners with the importance of their religion, their own misery, the necessity of a remedy, and the glory and sufficiency of the remedy provided, to stir up the pure minds of the saints, to quicken their affections by often bringing the great things of religion to their remembrance, and setting them in their proper colours, though they know them and have been fully instructed in them already." So it's by no means just singing or music that God has given for this purpose, says Edwards. Much of what we do as Christians together in church involves what we would say is the whole person. It engages not just the intellect, but the affections. And this is where I think we have to pause and understand what Edwards means by the affections, because it's a little more complex and more carefully defined than we mean by just saying the feelings or the emotions. He defines the affections like this, as, and I quote, the more vigorous and sensible exercises of the inclination and will of the soul. Now that's typically Edwards, it's deep and a bit complex. Let's read that again. He defines the affections as the vigorous and sensible exercises of the inclination and will of the soul. An affection, Edwards is saying, occurs when my soul is inclined towards or attracted to something in a way that I'm aware of, that I feel or I am sensible of. He's using the word sensible, not how we use it, but to mean something that I sense or am aware of, or feel. And so when I love, or delight in, or am affectionate 
towards something. I'm not just agreeing intellectually that this is a good or beautiful or right or morally excellent thing. My whole self or soul is inclined or attracted towards it, leans towards it, wants to choose it and embrace it. Or, on the other hand, to shy away from it in hatred or revulsion. And so when we say we love barbecue pork ribs, it's more than an intellectual assessment of of their taste or nutritional benefits. Our delight and desire for barbecue pork ribs is a felt inclination towards them, towards their delectability. And this makes us want to choose them, to immediately order them when we see them on the menu, as my wife always does. So an affection is the sensible, the felt and vigorous exercise of our will inclining towards something in love or affection, of wanting something, of choosing something, and of feeling that inclination or desire towards something. It's on this basis, then, that Edwards proceeds to list all the things that are no sign whatsoever that a religious affection is genuine or not. It doesn't matter, he says, whether the affections we experience are very great or very high, or whether they have effects on the body, or whether they cause people to be excited or to be very enthusiastic to talk about God. It doesn't matter whether they come upon us in an extraordinary way, or whether they make us feel comforted or joyful, or even whether they motivate us to greater involvement in church activities. We might add it doesn't matter also whether people have their eyes closed or not, or whether they sway or not, or whether they have their hands raised or not, as if warming them before that invisible heater. All of these signs or indications or experiences may accompany a genuine inclination of the soul towards the great things of God, or they may not. People may experience these sensations or affections or inclinations for all kinds of reasons, good and bad, genuine and counterfeit, They are no sign, says Edwards, that a particular affection is a true spiritual affection or not. The genuineness of a religious affection, Edwards goes on to argue, lies in its object. And this makes sense, given how he's defined what an affection is. An affection is the inclination of our soul, of our will towards something, to delight in something, to want something, to embrace it. And so the genuineness of that inclination really relies in its object, in the thing that our soul inclines towards or loves. And so genuine religious affections arise when God so illumines our understanding that we can grasp just how good and great and gracious and excellent and holy he is. And then when he moves and warms our will to incline towards his greatness and goodness, to delight in it, to love it, to trust it, to rejoice in it. In other words, for Edwards, the expressing and exciting of the affections, whether that's by singing or preaching or anything, can never be separated from our understanding being illumined, from the word coming to us and displaying before us the greatness and goodness of God. In fact, it's only as God's Spirit supernaturally moves us to grasp the truth about God and all that he's done through Christ, that true Christian affections can arise. 
So what does all this mean for our singing in church and for understanding what sort of emotional charge that singing has? Well, it means several things, and I've got five listed down here. The first is that the movement of our will towards God, the sensible or felt inclination of ourselves to love or be devoted or or to be grateful or to rejoice in him, all of these things are an indispensable aspect of normal Christian experience. These affections, as Edwards calls them, are expressed in and incited by all kinds of things that we do together, by preaching, by prayer, by singing, by small group Bible study and discussion, and no doubt much else besides. It's by no means the sole domain or purpose of singing to incite or express our affections, although singing obviously is a rich opportunity for doing so. Secondly then, in all of these kinds of practices, these affectionate practices, genuine affections, Christian affections, arise as an act of God's Spirit, as our hard hearts are softened and inclined to perceive and love the goodness of God in Christ. This is one of Edward's key points, that no natural activity in itself and by itself can generate a genuine spiritual affection. It's a supernatural event. And we shouldn't correlate the emotional power of certain forms of music and their effects with genuine Christian affections. A real Christian affection arises when God moves our hard hearts to come towards him and to love him and to delight in him on the basis of hearing his word. Thirdly then, we should say at the same time that singing is one very helpful means for stirring and expressing our affections because it not only turns our minds to some aspect of the truth, in other words, it is an activity of speech and word, but it allows us to enter into that truth with our whole bodies, to stand and to own that truth by putting our whole selves into it in a way that music can do very well. And this is the sense in which singing is emotionally charged speech. It matches and amplifies the content and intent of what we're saying and allows us to express our commitment to these truths, our affectionate commitment to the truth of what we're singing. I guess it's like the difference between writing on an airline's arrival slip that my citizenship is Australian and standing up to sing the national anthem with hundreds or thousands of others at a football match with, with my hand on, on my heart. They're both expressions of citizenship and being Australian, but one involves my whole self in a sense of commitment and joy and delight that the other one doesn't. Fourthly then, I think in practical terms, I think this means that we should express different aspects of the truth of God and of Christ in different musical forms that fit with or are appropriate to what that word is and enable us to own and love those truths with our affections. The nature of God's character and his works and all that he's done in Jesus is multifaceted. And so are the poetic and musical possibilities for declaring them and appreciating them and entering into them with our affections. And so finally, I guess this leads me again to question the increasingly one-dimensional nature of contemporary 
congregational singing, where one particular genre of slower, more intense songs seems to be dominating. Songs which seek to incite one particular form of affection, often with little coherent content. I suspect that under the wider and widespread influence of a more charismatic theology of singing and worship, we have begun to think that a genuine religious affection is seen in a particular kind of feeling generated by a particular kind of song. But this is not at all, as we've seen, what Edwards means by the religious affections, nor what the Bible means by them, I should say. I worry that this is the trend that we're seeing. Well, I hope that helps in some way to think about what the religious affections are and how they are essentially connected with the truth of who God is, with an understanding of who God is, that our soul and our whole selves inclines towards and grasps and loves and delights in. To incite the affections, the religious affections, is not a prelude to understanding. It's based on understanding, if I can put it that way. It's based on knowing who God is, such that we might love and embrace him. Well, the other question that came in during the week that was expressed by several people uh, is well represented in this question from Greg. He writes, Regarding your PS on songs about singing, I liked what you said, but then I didn't know what to do with things like, I will thank the Lord for his righteousness. I will sing about the name of the Lord Most High in Psalm 7. Or sing to the Lord, you his faithful ones, and praise his holy name, Psalm 30. There are lots of psalms that refer to singing. Weren't they singing about singing? Well, this is an excellent point, of course. It can hardly be wrong to sing about singing, or none of the psalms would make the cut. Two quick comments. It's obviously fine to mention singing when singing. Uh, Christian songs have been doing this forever, as, of course, do the psalms. It's, it's obviously a good thing to call on one another to sing and rejoice. I was really talking about the frequency and emphasis of those calls. There are so many songs now about singing. And within these songs, singing is at the centre. It's the chorus. It's the kind of climactic response of the whole song. This is one reason I didn't want to add any more songs that were like this to our list. But also, the Psalms do it differently. The invitation to sing in the Psalms is almost always followed or amplified by the content of what we're singing or giving thanks for. The praise that is to be sung is really a rehearsal or a declaration of how great God is and what he has done. That's what praise is. And this in turn leads to other responses like prayer or faithfulness or obedience and so on. In our songs about singing, many of the contemporary ones, the singing is in the chorus. It's kind of the climax. You have a verse about something or other, and then the big climax is, so let us sing and praise and worship your name. It's where it all leads. In other words, I think many contemporary songs move towards singing as the goal and supreme response, because I think they implicitly equate the act of singing with worship and with praise. Whereas those psalms that do contain a call to sing, and there are quite a few of them, tend to move in the other direction, from that call to sing to the real point of the singing, which is to declare to one another and to God all that he is and all the great things that he's done. Well, I hope that helps. 
Thanks for being with me again on The Painful Truth this week. It's been just over a year now that I've been blathering away each week here on The Painful Truth. And I have to say that this kind of thing, this kind of episode, interactions where you write in and I respond and we have a bit of a conversation about the topic, are just about the most enjoyable and encouraging aspects of the whole thing. So do keep sending in your questions and comments and responses. And thanks again for your partnership, not only in discussing and thinking about these things together, but in supporting me through your subscriptions. Uh, It allows me not only to have the time to do this each week, but it helps to fund the other writing work that I do uh, beyond the painful truth in writing books and resources and so on for, for Christian ministry. I'll be doing a little bit of tinkering over the next month or so with The Painful Truth. It's been a year now and I've started to learn a few things. I'll partly be doing some a few changes just because the platform I'm currently on, the Substack platform, has some new options that are available and that I might take advantage of. But I'm also thinking I'll slightly restructure the rhythm of how The Painful Truth comes out, including what goes out free to everybody, to the whole list, uh, and what goes out just to you. Uh, my faithful subscribers and partners. And I'll just sort of mention what I have in mind, and I'd be interested in your feedback uh, before I finalise this and and roll it out in a month or so. What I'm thinking is that for the next little while, I'll do it like this, uh, that I'll have two levels. There'll be those of you who are partners who help to support what I'm doing, and you'll receive the following. You'll receive, of course, my gratitude for being such generous supporters. You'll get the painful truth every week as a newsletter and as a podcast, uh, you'll get a new thing that I've decided to start, which is a kind of work-in-progress report. I figure that since you are generously supporting me in not only writing The Painful Truth, but in writing other things, I should make a more regular, systematic effort to share that with you, to share the fruit of what I'm doing. So once a month, I'll send out a little work-in-progress report of what I'm writing outside of The Painful Truth uh, with some sample chapters and draft chapters and things for you to see what's happening and to benefit from if you'd like to. So that's a new thing I'm going to start doing in the next little while, and that'll go just out to you as as partners. Uh, Also as partners, you'll have the ability to post questions or comments on the website or via email. Uh, That's something that only subscribers can do. And you'll also have access to a new monthly podcast interview that I'm going to launch called Painful Questions, which is a kind of a, a Q&A session each month where I'll chat with a guest about the issues and questions that have come up in the previous month on The Painful Truth, plus anything else we want to shoot the breeze on. And I'm expecting that many of those interview guests will be one of you, your faithful partners. So that's a sort of painful Q&A, painful questions that will happen once a month just as an audio interview. And those are all the different things that you'll get as a paying subscriber or partner. People on the free list, I'm thinking, will just get one free edition of The Painful Truth each month. I think in the third week of the month is what I'm planning. They'll be able to listen to the Painful Questions Q&A as well as an audio thing, uh, but not pose the questions or be part of it in that way. So I'm just wondering what you think, whether you think that's a, a good structure. Any comments or thoughts you have on that, I'd appreciate Um, I really do appreciate your feedback just before I finalise that and, and roll it out in the next month or so. Well, thanks for being with me again this week on The Painful Truth. Thanks especially for writing in, all those of you who did, with questions and comments. Uh, It's funny how the question of singing music often incites quite a few comments and questions. It's something we're always struggling to get our heads around and to do better. 
And I hope that the, the thoughts over the last couple of weeks have stimulated you in that direction. Thanks once again. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now.